Welcome to the One Oahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, September 21st, 2023. And it's been a minute, but we're back with Mayor Rick Blangiardi. And Mayor, I want to ask you about this first and foremost. I know that you recently celebrated a birthday. I did. Happy belated birthday, and how did you celebrate? Thank you. Well, you know, I celebrated around here with the rest of you, <laughs> but I, uh, I actually... Um Two things happened on the evening of my birthday. It was September 15th. I uh, went to Festa Italiana at the request of the folks putting that on, which was this past weekend. They had a VIP kind of a reception at Velocity, and it was really nice. They all sang happy birthday and said some nice things, and that was, that was nice. And then I had dinner with my family after that at La Petula in Waikiki at the Lohilani Hotel. It's actually a pretty good new Italian restaurant. So other than that, it was just a, just a joy being around all of you. Henry Capono came. He came and he surprised me. And all of you surprised me in this office. Everybody showed up from the cabin and this Henry with his guitar. That's and uh, honestly, that was the highlight of the day. Yeah. That really was. I just saw him a little while ago. And you know that because I just saw him the other day. And um, I, it was just it was a very moving thing. And one of the things that I did say, and I'll say this on this podcast, in the years that I was away from Hawaii, even though I would pretty much visit every year, but from 89 to 02, every now and then you hit these blue streaks. I'd be in some crazy cold place, you know, and and I would put Henry's music on. It was always like, wow, it really would take me to a very good place and sad place because I missed Hawaii so much. So I have him there on my 77th birthday in my office singing Friends and, and the best is yet to come. I mean, it was like, it was really cool. It was the best birthday present ever. So you said 77. So 77. Yep. In this past- I wore that number in high school. <laughs> That's the best thing I can tell you about it. And what is the biggest thing you learned in this 77th year? In this, since, since I turned 77? What's the biggest thing you learned? <laughs> I, 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 I think what I'm learning is I just living my life with a real sense of gratitude and um, responsibility for this job that I find myself in. And hopefully my ability to do the job is best I can, but I think we're, our team is really starting to come together. I think that's, I think you learn humility. You know, you, 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 you look at the human condition and if you have any intellectual honesty, you look at yourself and, you know, I try not to take myself too seriously. I take the work very seriously, but I see in my, in me sometimes, uh, you know, some things that I just kind of crack me up almost, you know, but you know, you just, that's the, that's the human condition. Something else that celebrated a birthday or an anniversary really was your Safe and Sound program in Waikiki. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the, maybe some of the strides that program has made and, and even some of the setbacks? Well, I think, you know, on the positive side um, is that we are, and I've heard from different people, we've been down there and we posted a number of rests. And I know that Chief Logan had some people dispute his statistics, but the statistics that were put out by HPD says, you know, crime is down in, in that area, especially other than some of the nuisance for noises. But that's because we're dealing with that more than we used to before. We before we were just ignoring it. Now we're not. Um, so that's going to that's it was bound to be up uh, from a percentage standpoint. But, you know, I, I still operate with, a, a, you know, a philosophy that zero tar. And so even if we're like you know, down to 32% of something is still stuff going on. And what we want is 
you know, for that really to truly be a rare exception when somebody decides to break the law down there because we want people to feel that kind of safety. And we need to make people feel that way, not just the tourists. Now, nothing, and believe me, they're important because it is the economic engine. But we got a lot of local people who live there mm-hmm. in Waikiki. We have a lot of people who go there to shop and have functions and dinners and stuff like that. It's not tourists only. And, and, uh, but for anybody and everybody, you know, given the fact that at any one time, that's the most congested spot on Oahu, you know, at any one time, that's where the most people are. And that creates opportunity for the bad guys, if you will, that, um, that we, 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 we try to mitigate that as much as possible. I'm not naive. I know things will still go on, but it's us against them kind of deal. Yeah, I've heard that before. You, you are a realist and you just said it yourself. You went there for dinner on your birthday. You were in Waikiki. And whether you have the actual temperature and then the kind of the feels like temperature, right? Yeah. There's a guy from the, you know, Boston, you know that. Yeah. So what is the feels like temperature there? What are you hearing from those in Waikiki when you do go there? I'm do, hearing, they see, do they see change? Yes, I'm hearing from a number of the hotel operators and they're feeling pretty good. What they really like is the foot patrol, the seeing mm-hmm. cops out there. But they know we've also augmented it with private security down that one end of the beach down mm-hmm. through there. And... Um, you know, and in general, those guys are moving around enough to, you know, make sure that we don't have bad incidents. We've we've now started closing the bathrooms and the parks earlier. Um, I know that's being contested, I believe, by the ACLU, but right now we think we're in the right and we are in the right. Uh, so we're just trying to protect people um, uh, because, unfortunately, the ones that are down there that cause the problems are chronic. Mm-hmm. We know who they are. They have long rap sheets here in Hawaii. Some have been arrested over 200 times. They've been in and out of all kinds of detentions or prison sentences and back out. They've been in front of judges. They've gotten geographic restrictions. They violate those. You know, we've got, we've got this host of characters, men and women, not just all guys, that... Um, just uh, there, and 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 they're dangerous because we've had incidents happen, and and since most of them have, we're pretty convinced of it, some some severe mental issues going on. That that makes it very volatile. Yeah, you, know, you just can't assume somebody's going to act a certain way when when you know that they're on the, some kind of me- having some kind of mental difficulty. That's a tough task for our Honolulu Police Department. Um, and, and I want to ask you about HPD because you recently attended the funeral services and the final salutes for two yes. pretty pretty major figures at HPD. I want to start off with Chief Donahue. Well, Chief Donahue, I think, was said at this service that he was a cop's cop. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd come in through and spent his whole career there and worked his way up. He was beloved. I think he was chief for about eight years. Um, it's not easy to become chief, especially when you come up through the ranks. So it says a lot about him. Just a, a tough guy. He cared about his troops. That's why I think they said he was a cop's cop, right? So he was a hard-nosed guy, uh, you know, his black belt and everything else, you know, out of uniform. But um, he was a good leader. And, um, and then he continued to support the police department even after he retired. You know, he did a, started, you know, that foundation for, um, for raising money for officers and uh, a whole, uh, the police community. Well, I'm trying to think of the name of it. The whole, Police Community Foundation is something like that. I should know it. I'm, forgive me. I've got so many things rattling around in my head, but I go to it every year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's there to you know help build camaraderie, help show the support, the respect. Um, I've said it over and over again. You know, The police are under criticism nationally and whatever, and it's been going on for a long time. It's a very difficult job. 
a lot of people don't even want to think about what they what they put up with each and every day, and yet they sign up to do it. So um, I was very sorry to learn of Chief Donahue's passing. He was always personally good to me. I always looked up to him. We're pretty much peers, you know, age-wise. I think I'm actually older than he is. Um, but but he was just somebody that in my life, uh, given who he was, was um, always very good. good. Good to talk to, acknowledging, interested, you know, like that. Good guy. What stuck with you with what you saw and what you heard um, at Bill Supple? Yeah, you know, um, well, first of all, Bill Supple happens to be the same, since we're talking about age, the same age as my oldest son. You know, when I looked at that, he said 1977, he was just born a few months apart. And, you know, I suddenly thought in that context, you know, he's so young. In fact, when I met his wife, this is, I don't mean to make light of a very sad moment, I asked if that was if she was his daughter. <laughs> she she smiled and said, "Thank you for saying that." Yeah. She said, "But I mean, she looked so young to me, you know." And then I met his little girls, and I think he has a he has a son, but he I didn't see him. But the but she looked. I mean, that was so. While well, I didn't know Officer Paul, I looked at all the pictures, and you know, and it was a very emotional church service at. Um, Central Union, and then we did the fun, you know, the one salute in front of the police station as we did with Chief Donahue, and uh, that was very moving because when they stopped with the casket and the family got out, there was a lot of people. They had like five buses plus a city bus full of people come out, and they were there, and you could see the pride in the family and um, the togetherness, and 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 you know, it's, it's always so sad. I mean, guy dies in the line of duty, and and he's so young, you know. So I think um, you know my son Matt's forty six, seventy seven is forty six. So yeah, our police department tasked with so much, and, and even they're offering their services on Maui too for peer support, uh, helping out on Maui. We, we read in your civil beat editorial that was published this week, you talked about using military support to avoid you know a threatening wildfire. Should it? Should well, it, I don't know if we avoid. But I, think, I don't know if we can avoid. I think what we're trying to do is see if we can get it to help because. Yeah. Well, each, at least on Oahu, while HPD has helicopters, I think they, the hel our helicopters can drop 100 gallons of water. I think the Chinook at any one time can can drop like, and I'm not exaggerating, I believe the number is 10,000. If it's not, it's 8,000, but it's not below that. Yeah. I, 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 I'm confused in the moment on that number, but I think it's like 10,000. I mean, it's, but the challenge with the Chinooks is they get those big blades as they get lower to the fire, right? But nonetheless, they could stay a little bit, the amount of water they can drop is tremendous. So that's just one thing. There's other things that we would want to talk with them about, about building brake, fire breaks and stuff, because, you know, we have a lot of fuel on this island, a lot of high grass, holly-coa trees, other things of that kind that are highly flammable that, you know, it's not just about cutting the grass. You got to create fire breaks and different things like that. And we may be able to have them help us with that because they, um, they have a lot of equipment for stuff like that. And they've got manpower too. So nothing's been done yet, uh, but the, the conversations have been most positive and, and, they're, and they're willing to help us. Yeah, it's hard to hear the word help, though, and kind of put ourselves in, in Maui situation because it is hard to accept help. And you hear the criticism that your, our counterparts on Maui are receiving. Right. What is your message to folks on either accepting help or kind of accepting government Well, that's a good question. I think, look, I, it's hard, and but there's no shame in, that, in receiving help. And and those people and all of us from time to time need help, but certainly in the middle of a devastation like that, they should um, hopefully, I don't want to ever tell people what they should do, 
but you know, really, um, I think the spirit is there. People want to help. I think people look at this and they look at the devastation, they look at the pain, the suffering, the loss of life, the loss of property, the very fact we lost a whole town. I mean, these are unimaginable. Of, that's an unimaginable event, especially something as quaint, if you will, as Lahaina was. It was sort of magical, right? Um, that 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 people just were all sharing of that sense of loss. Now, the ones that are there are more directly affected. I'm not saying it's the same, but mm. I said earlier this week in, a, in an interview, sometimes when something sad happens, you feel sad, but then somehow through the strength of your human spirit, you kind of move on after a little bit of time. Boy, this has just felt sad since it's happened. This whole month, it's just, it's just, it's a constant. It's just, it is so, it is so difficult. Yet we we have to go on. We have to, you know, find a way to, to move on. But right now in this moment where they're still naming names by the day of, of the remains of people that, um, uh, it's just it's just an unimaginable thing, and so I think in that circumstance, people should hopefully understand that people just want to open up their hearts and help, and it's for all the right reasons. Earlier this month, Mayor Bisson's wife was actually here on Oahu. We saw that she delivered the message of aloha um, with City Council. What were those conversations like? No, she was wonderful. She's uh, you know, and. and very happy that Rick Bisson has such a strong wife for him because I'm sure when he got behind closed doors all these many nights and weeks, given everything that was going on, he needed to have somebody with strength and character. Uh, she came over and, and she prayed and um, and she's not only spiritual, but she's very comforting and she's reassuring and she's all those things you would hope somebody could find a way of being at a time of such incredible difficulty. And you could see she was wearing it. She was wearing the sadness of it all. Um, but at the same time, you know, not not wanting to say, this is too much for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up. I can, you know, it was like that. She was very inspirational. And what did you say to her? I told her that I was humbled by her strength, that a lot of people would be looking to her for that that this would be an extraordinary period of time in her life because none of us have ever lived through this. Know that she's there for a reason. Know that, you know, if she can find the strength to give others, it will be a very gratifying thing for her. And I think that she will. I think she's going to help inspire their recovery efforts, which are going to be long and hard. But she seems, um, I would say, and I don't mean to sound cliche, but she's made of the right stuff. She's a good woman. I don't really know her that well. I met her when I went to Maui when Mayor Bisson was sworn in and to talk to her. Um, and those are much happier times, obviously. But under duress, in the face of adversity, you know, um, she was uh, very strong, very, very calm, very collected. And, and as I said a few moments ago, very spiritual about where they are. I want to shift gears now to move to one of the questions that was sent in. Um, by one of the listeners to this podcast. This was sent in by Rachel. And she says, every month I see truckloads of sand being taken from Ulehava Beach Park Canal in Nanakuli and transported to what she's assuming is Waikiki. Yeah. She feels this is a major waste of taxpayer money to the fact that beach erosion is inevitable. We're putting money towards reshaping a landscape that is constantly changing. Um, she asked if there's a way to stop this kind of unnecessary beautification efforts or just if you could clear up this issue. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm not the scientist on beach erosion, but I know that 
ever since I can remember, it's become more pronounced lately. Mm-hmm. Um, but all beaches suffer erosion. Right. The beach erosion, sand erosion, you hear about it all the time. Well, here we are on an island with shifting tides and everything and currents over time and sea level rise and real factors like that. I don't think we should just give up trying to keep our beaches beaches and moving stuff around but with respect to the sand that was removed from Uliabachero it's never been transported to Waikiki or anywhere else for that matter when the city dredges the channel to remove you know silt and debris and moving the sand in the in, in the outlet channel they, that's actually placed in the immediate adjacent beach area the immediate adjacent beach area. It doesn't go from Nanakoli into Waikiki. And it's in the spirit of what I just said. As a preface, this is the guys who know how to do that, know how to manage um, erosion and not, you know, not otherwise you'd just be losing all of it, you know? So the city does practice a few different methods of beach maintenance. For example, at Makaha Beach Park, our parks department does annual sand pushing, which means they move sand back up the beach or along the shore. They just do that out of Makaha. Any work we do requires coordination. Environmental reviews are done. The necessary approvals from different agencies. So there's a lot of people involved in this. This isn't just somebody made a decision somewhere. This is a lot of science goes into it. So how and where people recreate means a lot. We know that. When we did we've the 11 that. town halls, yeah. we, we've talked about that. So these practices are in place to ensure that people can have accessible recreational resources as we continue to explore community solutions for sea level rise and coastal erosion. I, and I think I want to finish where I started, which was we just don't want to give into this. And I think whether we did stuff before or we're forced to do it now because of sea level rise and develop new techniques or different ways, then that's what this is about. But we're not taking sand from Nanakoli to uh, to Waikiki. By moving it to the next beach, it's probably helping that beach, but at the same time, it also works against the erosion that's happening, you know. Mm-hmm. Mayor, earlier this week, you were out in Kapolei yeah. uh, at a groundbreaking ceremony along Copley Parkway. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Oh, it was a great event. You know, this is a collaboration of many parties. First of all, it's on city land. Um, but this, you know, and, and, and our Department of Land Management and our Department of uh, Permitting and Planning and Permitting, Cat Tashner runs um, planning, uh, uh, runs a division of land management. And um, Don Takeuchi put as DPP manager. They both deserve a lot of credit for this. But bottom line is, uh, this was done in conjunction. Uh, the public is us. The private was the Kobayashi Group and the Ahe Group, and they step up to the plate. And they also brought with them a myriad of bankers, so a number of financial institutions involved in this. In addition to that, um, these are 405 affordable rental units at 60% from studios to four bedrooms. These are dollars that people can afford who are really making, you know, hourly wage jobs. Mm -hmm. And they can afford to also, or at least predict that they're going to stay in their home. But add to that, a really good partnership here to create a preschool. Actually, it's still going to be six room, Mm -hmm. six classrooms offered, which I think is going to be sort of divided into two schools. I'm not quite sure of it, but it's going to be able to accommodate a lot of small children. And so that allows a lot of things to go on. First, and foremost for the child themselves, being afforded a good preschool education is a good way to start life because the kids who do have it versus the kids who do not have a decided advantage. Everybody knows that. I've read more studies about that over the years and it becomes one of almost lack of social equity, if you will. And so life is challenging enough and God knows the future they're going to grow into. But, you know, to start off in a deficit mode is tough. So anytime we can equal the playing field, 
or even the playing field, you know, to try to give young kids in, in more humble settings, if you will, financially and help them with preschool education. That's great. So I, I met the people in charge of that earlier this week and um, they're all impressive. They're all committed. They all see, they all see what can happen here because when you can do that, first of all, it enables the parents in some cases where they both need to work to be able to go to work, but also creates peace of mind. But more than anything, generationally, is getting kids off on the right foot. And the nice thing about out there is it's right across the street, even from a grammar school and the high school is not far away. The middle school is not very far away. And for that matter, the rail is only a mile away at this point in time and someday won't. So this is... Uh, this is a really incredible project because it took so many different people, private sector, public sector, the state as well as part of the public sector, not just the city and HHFDC. Just everybody came together. I, I'm, I'm inspired. I've been inspired about it for the last couple of days because it shows the potential of what we can do with this kind of collaboration and ingenuity and saying, okay, how do we get this done? And one of the things I, I just alluded to, and I'll say it again, and looking at some of the developments we're anticipating having happen with um, building building places like Cunia Boxcar Lot in, in Cunia is we're going to require preschools to go in there along with the housing development because that's the best way to make the whole thing work. It becomes really attractive. It really stretches their dollars um, uh, from the standpoint of their, their rents that they're paying. Uh, it allows their, their kids to, to go to be able to go to preschool. That's a really good deal. Um, when we talk about the state, the governor now has a new proclamation on housing, right? It's, it's been in the media a lot. What exactly is going on there? And are you happy with the pace that at least we're able to increase our affordable housing portfolio? Well, our affordable housing portfolio is kind of beat, marching to its own drummer. You know, and with the last emergency proclamation, um, while we're very excited and encouraged the governor what he did, and then he suffered all that pushback mm -hmm. from all kinds of interest groups and why they couldn't. At the same time, you know, we, we were trying to figure it out. That was what it was. I think he's recovered nicely with his amended version. I'm still waiting for our own corporate counsel to tell me where the opportunities for us as the city might be. I don't know that yet. I'm not sure if any necessarily exists. It may it may exist for developers in the twilight of the, the things that they're dealing with. I don't know enough about it yet because it's only been a couple of days. Um, but I do give him credit for not throwing in the towel and just giving up. Everybody was sort of speculating, okay, well, this proved to be a bad idea and they'll just let it lapse at the end of the 60 days is not what they did. So... I give him credit for trying to find workable solutions because that's where we are. And I've said this, I've been on the record of saying it a lot. The housing issue is very complicated. It's not a simple thing. And especially when government's involved and, 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 and then you have all the regulations, both at the state side and on the city side. I mean, it was almost been set up over time. It's no wonder we have a housing shortage, you know? These are tough problems. So I give him credit for not um, giving the amount of criticism, just, you know, putting their hands in their pocket and going, okay, well, we tried, too bad. They say, no, we're gonna try again. So I, I, I'm, let's see what comes of this. I wanna ask you about another story that's been in the news lately. Earlier this month, uh, Seth Buckley, chair of your Honolulu Liquor Commission, yeah. announced his departure. What happened there, and, and what's the situation at the Liquor Commission moving forward? Well, this is kind of a good and bad news thing. And bad news is I hate to lose Seth because he stepped in. He's been a good member of the commission, and he assumed the chairmanship of the board. Um, but his practice, he's a pretty skilled lawyer, is uh, created demands that compromise him because the Liquor Commission is a lot of hard work. 
That said, we've recently hired Sal Patios. Mm -hmm. We also hired a number two for him who I just met who came to us from the hotel industry, knows a lot about liquor. Um, so we're very happy about that. But we also have changed out five commissioners. And so three are about to be voted in. Uh, all five bring, uh, we've completely turned it inside out, bring a different dimension of energy and integrity and um, determination, knowing full well that the Liquor Commission could, could either be a gold star or a black mark on the quality of you know, our administration in the community. And, and quite honestly, it's not just because there's a lawsuit pending. It's we had a lot of misstarts on different things. We had inspectors. There's all kinds of things that have gone on. So I think that um, this is all an effort to start with leadership, to get it cleaned up, then to be able to drill down on where the dysfunctions may or may not be, and then do something about it. But we're serious about this. We should have, as a city that has, you know, the number of tourists that it has every year, the local people, the attitudes towards, um, you know, going to bars and stuff, it was all very favorable. Then um, we need to make sure we have a liquor commission that can maintain that for the good of the public. Have any of your friends asked you if there's anything you can do about the Board of Water Supplies rates being proposed? Yeah. And what you can do? What can you do there? Well, you know, I think I want to see how they come back. They're out there doing their ascertainments. Uh, they're telling people, I think it's a 10% increase or something. I forget what the timetable is, but it's fairly soon. I don't think they're telling people, take it or leave it. This is the way it's going to be, per se. I would only caution if they were to ask me, and I may, I may invite myself in to say it. Um, now it's not really a good time. It's not just because of Maui. I think we've unprecedented, at least in recent times, you know, 7% inflation, uh, interest rates rather. We've actually, inflation's been down a little bit, but still we're not on our feet. We're still reeling from COVID. Um, you know, people are not back to work yet. We're still sorting through a lot of stuff and it just seems like, I know life has to go on, but I, I, if there was some way to at least defer for a year or so, give people a chance to get on their feet a little bit more, I would really encourage that. Some news that broke earlier this week was that David Lassner at the University of Hawaii will, will be leaving at the end of next year. Yeah, he's going to leave at the end of 24, I guess. And I don't know exactly how many years President Lassner has been in office, but um, it's been a long time. And uh, I've known him a long time. We don't hang out together, but I've been with him enough. You know, and he and I have not always seen eye to eye. I've had a very different perspective on UH football. Uh, especially especially uh, the pay-per-view concepts and a whole lot of other things um, from the standpoint of potential conference realignments. I mean, these are legitimate points of argument uh, that I think, you know, I I feel comfortable in saying I know a little bit about. Um, and uh, so from that standpoint, there's been a real reluctance, resistance uh, from the president's office, but that's about sports. There are other things at play here. And look, I heard, and I'm very careful here since I'm seven years older than President Lesnar, uh, that he was sort of hinting around, I think, when he turned 70 this past year, that maybe now is a good time because there's more to do in life. And, you know, 70, I guess, has become not an official retirement age, but I think when you hit 70, I remember when I hit 70, which was now seven years ago, I remember thinking, wow. 
That's a big number. It was something when you find yourself saying, I'm 70, it sounds a lot different than even 60 used to sound, or even 69 for that matter. It's just this ring to it. You go, whoa. So uh, I, I can understand that. I mean, as a, as a peer, if you will, even though I'm, I'm older, you know, I mean, I think about it when he was being born, I was already in the third grade, if you could say it that way, you know. Um, uh, that I think, though, honestly, my own personal journey, we're all different. I don't even claim that he and I are alike in any way. But, you know, you get to that point in life and you say, okay, well, maybe it's time to put a ribbon on this and 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 go to the next chapter. I mean, if I look at David, he still looks youthful. His hair's gotten a little bit whiter. He has that kind of energy about him. There's a lot of things he could do. I mean, you know, retiring as a university president for as long as he was one and, and then given his whole career in academia, I got to believe there's lots of different things he could get himself involved in. So I, I don't know if the retirement thing, I think it's more about his leaving the university. One of the things I do like is if he's announced it with a year and a half, that tells me, I hope, that they're going to go through a very serious succession effort to figure out who should be the next president and not just do some knee jerk. And, um, you know, and so I think I'm encouraged by that. You talked about athletics, and I think that's important, right, for the president. There, there can't be a disconnect between upper campus and lower campus. Cannot. And, and that's huge. Is that something that you could see yourself doing? What, being president? I'm just trying to hang on and be mayor. <laughs> uh, what I have liked to be in charge up there? Yeah, I do. <laughs> in some ways, because I honestly think... Um, yeah, I've been through the down moments, going back to when I first started playing in 65, all the way through a lot of really great moments with the program on some really great coaches and then seeing the down moments again in other situations, other eras. But Hawaii's magical. We all know that. And football is such a beloved game here. And we produce so many good players just this week. I mean, Kahuku last week beat John Bosco. And, and I read earlier they're ranked in the top 10 nationally. I mean, these guys can play, and we know that. you know. And, and so I, I know that there's a deep-rooted – love of the game here it's it's intrinsic it's 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 part of who we are and i think honestly i think the uh football program take nothing away from timmy chang and what he's trying to get done is it's kind of lost its place of relevance and i think that's happened over a series of decisions that i really disagree with i i i strongly felt that going to a pay-per-view model where you don't have a full stadium is detrimental to attendance i don't care what anybody wants to argue and then worse yet the only advertising about going to the games or, or watching the games on television right now from a marketing standpoint is buying pay-per-view and stay home and so when I see a game like we had two weeks ago against Albany and 7,600 people show up, and that was the announced through the turnstile, which is just so happens by coincidence, if you do the math, a little bit less than half the capacity. And then even having people leave in the fourth quarter and the game was still in the line, a couple of thousand people got up and left. It was kind of an exodus out of the stadium. And, and I, I mean, you got to fight to put people in those stands. They got to want to be there. You know, I watched with Envy last weekend the 60 Minutes piece that they did on, on you know, Coach Prime and, and Deion Sanders, but what they've done in Colorado and how the place is sold out. And they were 1 and 11 a year ago. And I'm not saying you go out and hire Deion Sanders. I'm not saying that. But, you know, strategically, and I was really felt that the athletic director that hired him was also very humble. He said, I've been the AD for 10 years. I failed the last nine years. I'm glad I got it right this time. I was struck by that because 
you know, they've been going through hard times and they're in the Pac-12 and there's a lot of pressure and it's a big game there. And they've had a history, a storied history of sometimes being great and other times not. Um, but, you know, they understood the passion for the game with their fans. And the thing that was so upsetting about the Albany game after the Stanford game was the students didn't show up. They showed up for the Stanford game. They weren't there for the Albany game. You know, I mean, and I don't know where they were. And, but I just, I just think, I just felt that the management, the macro management, they put everything on the wins and losses of a head coach thinking that's going to sway the community. In truth, that endears the community. But, you know, you got to, athletic directors and presidents, they manage that stuff and they make it happen. And all the great programs are done that way. They're presidents and athletic directors and they make bold strategic decisions. Look at all the stuff that's gone on and just the conference realignments and everything else that's gone on with it and the strategic decisions they've made. I feel like we've we've just been outside. All that's been going on in the world of football and we've not even been in there trying to even stir possibilities. We're just kind of rationalized football only in the Mountain West and Big West for all other sports thinking that that's good enough um, that's not how you stay competitive so that's my feeling about it and that's pretty candid I'm not saying to slam anybody I just I don't know if it's already gone on too long in fact the other thing that's so upsetting and understandably maybe now because of Molly probably going to create even further delays but I just this week a couple of times was out out in the North Shore drove by the stadium and there it just sits there empty like mm -hmm. like the great symbol of yesterday year and Nothing even happening to us in the future. I don't know when it will. And that certainly has a big impact on the university's football program. And nobody should deceive themselves to that. Kids who want to play Division One football, we talked about Kahuku a few moments ago, and those kids and those aspirations, and they're going to get recruited by big schools. I promise you, when they show up on campus, that's what they do. They take them to the stadiums. They have them visualize themselves playing. And they take them to their trophy cases. They show them the locker rooms. You know, They take them around. We're in a real deficit model, and it's tough on a guy like Timmy Chang trying to recruit against that, as well-intended, as capable as they may be. And that's before we even talk about the modern era of football with NIL monies and transfer portals and all the things you're up against. How do you think Deion Sanders built the program? He cut all the guys there. He never could have done it overnight. Never could have done it at a different time, but he was able to go recruiting nationally on his popularity from the transfer portals. And guys, all these free agents that they recruited away from campuses, maybe in some cases even sort of bought with financial enticements with the NIL money, um, that's what they did. You, you could have never done that in the past year of football, but today that's the reality. So we're, we're out of the loop on all that stuff, and we're one in three. I'm hoping this weekend you know, we're going to win against New Mexico State. We're kind of where I thought we would be, although I thought last weekend's game against Oregon might have been really debilitating and defeating because we were just outmatched right from the get-go. I mean, really outmatched. So hopefully the kids can bounce back. But um, I'm, I'm, just hoping the, I'm just hoping the fan base is interested like it used to be. And I, I had the benefit of when I was coaching in the old stadium for a number of years, sold out, then we moved to Aloha Stadium. We did okay, but then Dick Tomey came in in all those years of being sold out and been conversations with Stan Scherf about expanding once we put it in a football configuration only at Aloha Stadium and filling in those pukas and adding another 16,000 people and even then questioning whether or not 66,000 seat stadium was, was even big enough. I mean, that's where it was. That's where it was. And it shouldn't be where it is today, given the fact we were able to attain those heights. And that's before 
before we even talk about a super a sugar bowl year year with June and his remarkable stuff that he did, it's that was even before that. So uh, the potential of it's there, and I just feel like in anything wasted potential, missed potential, unachieved potential, it's a sad thing because we have it here. We have a love of the game. We have the athletes. We have a lot of stuff. It just hasn't been managed at the level it should be managed at. That's how I feel. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, right, so securing facilities that are impressive enough for recruitment, marketing, right, TV contracts. If that all kind of hangs on the shoulders of a head coach, what is primetime Deion Sanders doing? Because I don't know if he has that that side. No, he's not doing that. He's got other guys doing it. You know what I mean? There's other, he, uh, the head coach is out there and he's trying to win the games, okay? And he's trying to recruit the best players he can. He's trying to keep players eligible, keep them healthy, keep them playing, or, or reaching their potential to play better than you know, all of that development of athletes, right? He has an right? interesting way of doing that, though, right? That's yeah. I mean, telling them you yeah. can walk or, or stay. I mean, it, yeah, that's true if you're going to talk about him. But 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 he, you need help, though. That's what I'm trying to say. you got to have an AD and a president and a lot. you got to just have – there's there's super forces involved in big-time college football that, that go beyond – the head coach. What I'm saying is they've kind of reduced it all to, well, if we have the head coach and if he wins, the community get excited and then they'll turn out. And if he doesn't, then it's like almost his fault. That's putting way too much on a head coach. Way too much. It's an unrealistic expectation. This thing's to get macro-managed at a level, macro-managed, not micro-managed, macro-managed at a level of people of influence and persuasion and stuff. We, we, should, we, should, we should be in some kind of conversation right now knowing that the Mountain West is still at play on what's going to happen after this season. And I know that there's a real real effort going on to try to pull a reverse merger with both Oregon State and Washington State and hold on to whatever the assets the Pac-12 has versus. And there's a possibility there that that could happen. You know, And we're not even in that conversation. We're not entertaining that conversation. We're like, we like where we are. Well, you know, it's that old thing about the three kinds of people kind of got pro- walks out on his porch and just watches what happens. Another person walks out and says, what happened? You know, questions it. And the other one walks out and makes it happen, right? So we're not in the makes it happen category. We're out there kind of watching and 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 I guess somehow hoping that we're not going to be adversely impacted. And I'm not so sure. Look, the same way the stadium got pulled out from under us, a Division One football stadium suddenly closed with no home for the team to go to. That kind of abrupt change in direction and significant impact, which is not to be understated, could happen tomorrow with some kind of conference realignment. And if we're not even at the table trying to make our case, we're going to be out of it just as shockingly as that happened. I believe that. And in the world of Division One football today, it's so competitive and it's so, it's so important you talk to any of these presidents running these big programs and these big schools, for all that they tout in academia, you know, the football program has a lot to do and correlates with so much that's good about these universities. It's just big business. And, you know, and 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 we've sort of been there, um, but we we got away from being there. And that's the sad part of that, because the potential of it is here. Getting back to our guys, when you look at the schedule every year, right? Mm. People, fans, circle the games. Okay, maybe this will be a W, maybe this will be a W. Some people circled this weekend, New Mexico State, like you mentioned. Yeah, they um, just, but they just knocked off New Mexico. Yeah. You know, and Sacramento State just beat Stanford. So how good was Stanford? 
Yeah. You know, and I mean, they didn't look good at all against USC, but Sacramento State. So I don't really know how good we are. I can tell you this: during the Oregon game, the announcers were saying they weren't even sure the guys were on the field from Oregon. They they weren't even on the depth chart. So it's not like it was a 55-10 mm-hmm. kind of a game. The reality is, I think that Oregon got a lot of heat putting 70, 81 points on the board against Portland State, and they didn't want to they didn't want to look bad like that. And and so I, I, I would just tell you that uh, I was bullish in our crowd, if you're asking me. I had them down at, this year at going five and seven. And everybody said I was nuts. And I was like the most bullish guy. And I didn't even like that because I felt like I had get a losing season because I want to be the optimist. But you started to look at the games. And sure enough, some of these teams are playing pretty tough that we have coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, and and um, so hopefully we beat New Mexico State. We get that second win. We go up to play Las Vegas in Vegas at Allegiant Stadium. That's going to be a tough game. You know, I mean, and then and then the schedule actually gets harder towards the end. Right. You know, I mean, as far as teams that we used to maybe be able to beat, they're all pretty good this year. They're better than we are. So we have to be playing upset football down the home stretch. All right, well, Mayor, this is the one whole I know, we were in sports. I'm sorry. We <laughs> we're, were in sports, but you know what? I know why I, I don't mind talking about it because as I was reminded lately, because people said I should have a voice, this is important for our community. You know, I I have been here when the times are really good in football, and it is a community experience. Mm-hmm. It's not just the 50,000 people in the stadium. It's how it resonates through the whole place. And that, in this day and age right now, where we've all been through so much, it just, knowing that something like that could be possible to be able to have that as part of our living here. Um, that would be a really cool thing. It, like I said, it used to be here. We've lost, we've lost that loving feeling. Okay. Need to get it back. I like that. But do you have any other final thoughts for the one <laughs> podcast? <laughs> no, I look, I, I would tell you that, um, on the other side of it, and staying in my own lane as mayor, you know, we're after the tough problems. We're after the housing issues. We're after fixing DPP. We're after doing stuff on homelessness. We want some help from the state. And admittedly, the governor's been distracted with Maui more than that. Um, but we're not letting up on the tough stuff. And, and we're determined to make a big difference during our time in office. Well, Mayor, thank you for your time. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next week as we're joined by the director for the city's Department of Customer Services, Kim Hashiro. If you have a question about your driver's license, maybe there's a rooster in your neighborhood that's driving you crazy, submitting your podcast questions are easy. Just head to oneoahu.org slash podcast. And until next time, aloha. Aloha.